everybody. Welcome to another episode of Courtside with Beal and Sincentis, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. We are privileged to have with us the creator of Brain Game Tennis, Craig O'Shaughnessy. As many of you know, Craig is really a pioneer and a leading expert on employing video analysis and statistical tracking of matches to gain a competitive edge. Craig has worked with a number of players, including Novak Djokovic. My co-host and Hall of Famer Steve Flink and I are so excited to talk with Craig. So without further ado, please welcome to the pod, Craig O'Shaughnessy. Craig, thank you for taking time tonight and talking with Steve and I. My pleasure. I'm, I'm a big fan of your podcast, and it's a uh, thrill to be joining you guys and um, sucking in some of that knowledge that Steve's got, you know, all those books back there behind him. Some he's written and some he's studied and um, good, good stuff there, mate. Oh, thank it, you. it is great stuff. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we're looking forward to learning a ton about your work. Steve and I are both huge fans of, of um, all of your work that you're done you, and what you're continuing to do. I know we're grabbing you right before you're heading out of town. I know you're going to Rome soon. So we still got you in the States. And um, I know you're currently working. You're doing some work now with the Italian Tennis Federation, including uh, doing some work with Matteo Berrettini, right? Yeah, exactly. I've worked with him probably for six years now. Um, The relationship started as kind of an advisor um, for all of the high performance coaches throughout the country. I the first couple of times I went to a bunch of different cities during the trip. Um, and then they had all their coaches come in um, to the next gen uh, championships. And um, I greatly enjoyed my time there. And it kind of evolved when I was working with Novak back in 2018, 2019. They're like, well, we've got this Italian guy that's coming up. We think he's going to be good. His name's Matteo. Can you kind of look at his stats and look at Novak's and compare? And, you know, in a nutshell, he was already. Um, you know, when he was basically moving through 100 in the world, kind of moving through 50 and, and ended up the year at eight. And, you know, the serving analysis, you know, instantly showed how good he was on that side of the equation. Um, and the returning was where the work was done or needed to be done. And, um, you know, that they took that on board and really focused on that. And um, Mateo's come a long way. And, you know, they've done a really good job as well of incorporating uh, opponent analysis and previewing and scouting. So, you know, the Italian Federation as a whole has really taken that on board. And, um, you know, we see the results of what they're doing today. We're going to get into a lot of the meat and potatoes of what you're doing, but I want to take it back a little bit. Um, for the listeners that haven't, um, that don't know your story, if we can take it back a little bit, um, you're a native Australian. We know you ended up at Baylor on uh, Waco for college. And shout out, shout out, uh, yeah, shout out head coach Michael Woodson. You know, we both know Michael. I've yes. known Michael a long time, good friends. I know him at Valpo, and he was a star in the making then. And, okay. you know, he then moved on to Baylor. The associate head coach then got the opportunity as the head coach, and he's just doing a great, great job. They've won the Big 12 championships now three years in a row, finished second in the country uh, last year, losing to Florida. So Michael's just doing a great, great job at Baylor, and I know you're a fan of his as well. Absolutely. Um, I played at Baylor back when we were more the bad news bears. We, <laughs> we, were, we weren't so good, um, but I greatly enjoyed my time there. And I studied journalism and uh, Waco, Waco was, was a great city for me. And Baylor was, it was an amazing time. And how'd you wind up in the States going to, to college? Um, 
I graduated high school in 1984. I didn't know what I was really going to do. And um, I was- And you graduated high school journalism. in Australia? Yes, in Australia, okay. yes. Um, I thought, you know, journalism was something that, that interests me. I actually went to university for about a month and got offered a job in my hometown at a newspaper. So I quit university a month in um, and started, uh, started my apprenticeship basically at, at, the, at the newspaper. And I was there, you know, for, for about almost, you know, two years. And I'm like, I, I still had this itch to keep playing. And I knew the, that I could go to the States. I knew I could play college tennis. I knew I could study journalism there. And, um, you know, after working for the newspaper for a while, I had an opportunity through a friend's dad that knew a coach in the US. And my freshman year, I landed at Oral Roberts University in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I know um, it. Bit of a culture shock for a, for a country boy from Australia. And uh, lasted a year and then transferred to Saddleback Junior College in Southern California. Had a great time there. Um, we won the Southern, we won this, the, the California Championships as a team. I won the Southern Cows as in, in singles um, and Ojai doubles. And then it was a, it was a two year school. So I had to go somewhere after that. And I ended up at Baylor and really enjoyed my time there as well. Hey, I got to give a shout out for Oral Roberts. You know, I'm a University of Kansas alum and our head basketball coach, Bill Self, his first head coaching job was at Oral Roberts. There so, hey, go. shout out Oral Roberts. There I don't go. know if you knew that correct. I did not. <laughs> Um, so just a quick, David, just a quick thing, Greg. So when the, when, by the time you left Baylor, would you have believed you would be where you are in your life right now? I mean, how much of a sense did you have of your future back then? Zero, mate, zero. I, you know, I, I left when I graduated with a journalism degree. I'm like, what, what do I go? I've got tennis and journalism as my two main passions. And I'm like, do I go writing, you know, obviously Sports Illustrated and something along those lines, um, you know, caught my eye, but also, you know, tennis still caught my eye and I wasn't good enough to play. I mean, I played some club tennis um, during the summers. I went to Germany during two of my summers, but I was never really good enough to go and, and, and play on the tour. So there was the coaching route or there was the journalism route. And um, uh, I got involved. Somebody set me up with, a, with an interview with a company called Peter Burwash International Steve, I'm, I'm sure you know Peter very well. And, I do. And, yep. um, and you know, the, the world headquarters was in the Woodlands, which is, you know, a couple of hours south of Waco. So I went down there, went to New York for the interview, actually, um, and, and then got a job at PBI. And I was in Houston at the, the Woodlands Country Club for about uh, almost two and a half years. And, um, you know, it was a fantastic foundation for my coaching. You know, there was... A lot of things in tennis, you know, I thought I was a pretty good player and I'm going to come in. I'm, I'm going to, you know, kind of do my thing and, um, you know, be a good pro because I was a good player. But, um, you know, Peter's way of doing things is, you know, was, was very fundamental and very simple. And I greatly enjoyed my time there. And then I left and went to went back to Australia um, and started my own academy at the Wodonga Tennis Centre, which is close to my hometown of Albury. 52 courts, 30 grass. Wow. I became the club president. Courts. Became the club president. And I was I, I started an academy. I was the only coach. Um, and, and things grew very quickly there. And you know, I had a row 
of 16 grass courts to myself every evening, every evening. So I could have 32 kids playing singles um, in, in, in my academy. And, and, you know, that was also, you know, going through PBI and, and, and having my own academy and being able to be kind of a mad scientist and ex experiment with a lot of these things. I mean, can you teach pro patterns to junior players? I don't know. Let me go try it. So, you know, there was a lot of things that we were told as coaches that, you know, things you could do or things you can't do and things that happen in our sport. I'm like, I, I can experiment. I've got my own club. I can do whatever I want here. So those were the formative years that, that really set me down that pathway. So Steve, to specifically answer your question, I had no idea I was heading and, and I had no aspirations actually to head down the path road um, that, that I eventually ended up on. You know, I, I tell people that I almost failed math in high school. Um, you know, that, that side of it, you know, the stat side of it never interests me at all. Um, but once you once you become a coach, you, you want your players to win. And you're like, well, is it better to hit a forehand or a backhand? Is it better to serve and volley or stay back? Um, you know, all these questions, you just have to look at the win percentages. That's it. So that got me involved with, with the analytics of the sport, just, just figuring out what patterns of play were better than the others. How many years into coaching did you start to really kind of dive into the, the statistical part and start using video analysis of it? My dad bought one of the very, very first camcorders when they came, uh, the consumer camcorder when they came to market. So, you know, you've got this big handheld camera with a lead and a backpack with a VHS tape you put in and you walk around with the backpack. And we took so many home movies um, as a kid. And, and then the thing just kind of sat there for a bunch of years. And I'm like, let me take it out on the court and film um, film players uh, serving and returning and, and forehands and backhands and then playing points. And I found it fascinating early on where almost every time I showed a player um, you know, back in 1995, here's, here's what your forehand looks like. Here's what your serve looks like. And with a VHS tape, you know, you can pause it and frame by frame. And, you know, it's right there, you know, for, for the first time in your life, you can use this. Um, and it's like, they had no idea. Every time that, oh, like, oh, I had no idea that that's how I hit a ball. Oh, I can, I can see the error. So I quickly figured out, I, 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 I created a library of good forehands, good backhands, good serves, good volleys whether it was me doing it or, or Sampras doing it or somebody doing it, I created this nice little library. So whenever I videoed somebody, the first thing that I learned that was the best is you show them the, the baseline. You, when I mean, what I mean by the baseline is you show them the fundamental, fundamentally correct strokes or strategies. And then you show them theirs and then you shut up. And then they're like, oh, I see what Pete's doing over here. Um, I see what I'm doing wrong over here. So that enabled... Um, me to coach via video the easiest so yeah i guess i would i would lead I, I would lead into the next part greg is there's there's it's very different obviously using video and showing what you're technically doing wrong right yeah. and then you took it even another step and said okay now you're dealing with high level players maybe the tech the technical stuff you don't have to focus on as much now we got to take it into the stats and how you're going to play your opponent and win. Um, did that generally just go into the next step or was that a yeah. conscious decision that you made that you're going to focus uh, on the stats part of it now? Well, the year I graduated from Baylor was 1991. 1991 was also the same year that stats became official in tennis, official stats. 
So, you know, I'm talking now, I moved back to Australia um, and start my academy in 1995. So stats in tennis is still really primitive. I mean, we haven't moved past them in a lot. You know, if, if we watch a tennis match tonight, they're going to go, well, here's your first serve percentage and um, here's your first serve points, one and second serve points, one and your unforced errors, which is literally the worst statistic in our sport. And that's really about it. It doesn't tell a good story. So no, Craig, do me a favor. Explain. It, it, I, I see your point, but tell the listeners why the unforced error in your view is, is the worst stat. Well, the first thing you're, do, you're trying to do, Stephen, a point, your number one goal is to make the opponent miss. Around Our sport is organized around 70% of all points is an error from a, a player and around 30% is a winner. And that's from the pro level. And it probably goes to 75 to 80% errors for, for the recreational level. So what you want to actually do is create an error on the other side of the court. Um, but when you look at our statistics, so you could, in a general view, go, okay, we have a winner. We have a forced error, which means mm -hmm. I hit a good shot and I extracted the error. We have the unforced. But you're never going to see a forced error up there. It, it's the forgotten stat in our sport. And it's, it's, it's literally the number one thing you're trying to do. An unforced error is so subjective. You've got... Yeah. You know, at Wimbledon, you've got some drunk college kids that have got a hangover that, are, you know, they're not watching. The, and I know this because I've spoken to them. They're like, yes, we were sitting there, you know, inputting this in for IBM. And <laughs> yes, we, you know, th there would be a point anyway. Well, I don't really know. Was that forced? Or was that unforced? And, you know, does it differ by surfaces? And I, I went to the PTR convention and the USPTA convention. I showed them 12 consecutive points of Millman versus Nadal. And I said, okay, everybody stand up. Um, and you at, at the end of this point, I'm going to show you the point, And you've got to turn around to the person next to you and say, was it forced or unforced? Uh, at, at both conventions with, you know, 500 coaches in there. Um, if you get it wrong, you sit. And at both conventions by two, you've, we've lost 97%. There's only like, a, you know, six people that have got it right. And by four, four, they've got it all got it wrong. Coaches don't know it. We can't look at a point and definitively know it. Tennis needs to be simpler and say, that's a winner because it did not touch the racket or that's an error. There is no benefit to our sport in saying an, a for, an unforced error is better than a force. It's an error is an error is an error. Simple. Oh, that's good. That's good stuff. Because um, again, there's it is very different between what could be what's quote unquote an unforced error. That's basically just a missed shot. No, no, uh, I don't know, no, nothing that was really heavily done by your opponent versus someone where your opponent forces you. It's not a winner because you're going to get your racket on it, but obviously nothing successful comes out of it, which we would classify as a forced error. So you're just saying call it an error, plain and simple. That's it. Very simple. That's it. Make it simple. That was a winner. That was an error. So let's go into some of your stories. And, and I know that one of the highlights, and you've been asked about this a million times, so I'm going to ask you to talk about it one more time. I'm sure you don't mind it because it's probably a highlight in your career was the Dustin Brown and Rafa match. Um, you know, <laughs> you, you remember that, you know, and you, you could talk about that in your sleep. I, I'm sure you can, but there are listeners that don't know about that match and they may just know the outcome, but they don't know about the work that you did with that. Um, Going into that match, no one in their right mind thought Dustin. Eh, Dustin's a better grass court player than he may be on other surfaces. We'll give him that. But again, when you look at it on its face, Dustin Brown versus uh, Rafa Nadal, you're going to pick Rafa. What happened in the preparation to that? And what happened during the match that um, made that upset occur? Well, Dustin did beat Rafa at Hala. 
So he did, but but Raf is like, you know, eight minutes off a of clay court, goes straight to Huller, and you know, he's his head spinning, he can't see straight, and Dustin's coming at him like a spider monkey, and it's like, you know, at the, the, the loss. But yeah, so when we get to Wimbledon, you know, Raf is, you know, a, a past winner of the tournament. You know, he's what was he two in the world or three in the world or something at, at that time. So yeah, Raf is the heavy favorite. Um, Dustin does what Dustin does. You know, a lot of what the, what Dustin did to win that match was already set in his DNA. He's going to come forward. He's going to take the ball early. What I was able to do was show him exactly how to play Rafa, exactly how to input his game into the weaknesses of Nadal, what to expect from Rafa and where to attack. And... And Dustin did that extremely well. And there's times from a coaching standpoint where you deliver information to a player and they kind of get it right or they start well and it fades and they start forgetting it. Um, Dustin nailed it. So we've got to give him, you know, a ton of credit. You know, one, I'll give you one example. In the juice court, Raph is going to serve down the tee and serve down. That's what he loves to do. The slice serve down the tee. So Dustin, instead of putting his right foot on the singles line, where most right-handed players will start, will play, even sometimes when they're playing a lefty, Dustin basically put his right foot where his left foot was going to be. So he moved way over. So the slice now, as it's moving away in the juice court down the tee from Rafa, Instead of it moving away from Dustin, Dustin having to step sideways, he's now coming forward at it. And especially on a second serve, Rafa is going to hit that second serve as a slider down the tee, and he's going to fall back to the juice court to protect his backhand and look for a runaround forehand. He's, you know, my job writing for the ATP essentially was to cover the finals of, of, of Masters, 1000s, and Grand Slams. So it goes without saying, I've start, studied... Rafa so much, so much, you know, the guy hits, everything is, is so meticulous with his strategy. Everything is so meticulous with everything that he does. I know what the guy's going to do because I've just watched it over and over and over and over again. And he does the same things because he should do the same things because they're high percentage patterns. So I showed those high percentage patterns to Dustin. I showed him video um, and, and he absorbed that, that coaching and he went out there you know, we had a couple of days to set up for that. And we went out and practiced those patterns. And he went out there ultra confident, ultra confident, you know, and he looked at the other side. And, you know, I went out there saying, Dustin's going to win this match. People were nuts when they're like, you know, has Dustin got a chance? Dustin's going to win. And, you know, the, the first game he's coming in, he's hitting high backhand swinging volleys. Um, he's hitting ridiculous drop shots. He's hitting, you know, and you've just got to kind of, as a coach, let some of that go. Like when he tries a, a, you know, a return drop shot and misses it badly, you're like, it's okay. It's okay. Let that go. It's all part of the plan. And in fact, you're not giving Rafa um, the, 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 um, the repetition that he's looking for. So Dustin played extremely well. Rafa did not um, adjust at all. Rafa should have served and volleyed much more because Dustin was owning the net. And once the player owns the net, it's like, okay, uh, you can go and take it away from them. So Rafa actually, I think, served and volleyed once or twice. I, I wrote about it right afterwards. Once or twice in the match, won, won the points, but failed to keep doing it. 
because Dustin's returning and coming in. So if, if Rafa had a served and volleyed, that would have um, thrown a monkey wrench in Dustin's strategy. So Rafa, Rafa did not adjust. Did not adjust. That's interesting. And like you said, give credit to the player, right? Because you could you could have the yeah. the perfect plan. The player yeah. still has to execute. I mean, you could tell me what Rafa's going to do. I'm going to go out there 50 times. I'm a pretty decent player, but I ain't going to be Rafa. So, like you said, credit to the player because the player credit still to has to Absolutely. execute, even if he knows what's coming, even if he knows the pattern. Um, incredible stuff. I know Steve wants to ask you a couple things. Um, no, I. I guess what I wanted, I mean, I, that's a fascinating story. And I know what you mean about Rafa and patterns and, and how, and I can see how you would have been able to study those patterns and, and provide the best possible advice. But as a new, more neutral observer, never mind the fact that you had the satisfaction of helping a player pull off a big upset, which must have been very rewarding for you as a coach. But here's what I want to know. I look at Rafa and in six, seven and eight, he was in the finals of Wimbledon. He lost to Roger in four. He lost to Roger in five. And then he beat him in the epic in, in 08. Couldn't defend in 09. Wins the title in 2010 impressively over Burdich in the finals. And then and loses to Novak in the 11 finals. His journey since then at Wimbledon has not been nearly as pleasant. I mean, what, why do you think... Rafa was so successful on the grass for so long. And because, I mean, for him, that, that, I mean, that was, that was a lot of years of five straight years missing one year of not missing a final. And then since then, we haven't seen anything like that. And I didn't think he played very well, by the way, against Roger in the 19 semis. I thought that was not a first rate performance in Rafa on the grass. What have you observed in Rafa as a neutral observer? Because you continue to analyze this game uh, that has made less successful on the grass than he was in the earlier years. Yeah. So you got Rossall that beat him. You got yep. Dancis that beat him. You got yep. Dustin that beat him. Right. Um, right. Just, I think overall, when, if Rafa would sit down and look at those matches, um, players, players came at him. Players attacked him. Players went after him. And, he didn't go after them enough. There was, there was, I think he was, he was too passive. I think he didn't come to the net enough. I think that he just, he let guys do their stuff against him too much. He didn't assert himself out there as, as much as he could have. So, you know, I think it's a, it's a matter of like, let me kind of back off the pedal a little bit. Let me put some balls in play and let this guy make a bunch of errors and go away like it happens on hard court, like especially it happens on a clay court. Um, and, it, you know, he just got on the wrong side of that. And sometimes it's a point here and a point there. Um, like Russell played lights out, you know, but, but Russell got to the fifth set and just said, I'm, you know, I'm hitting everything as hard as I possibly can and it worked. And the crowd got yeah. behind him and, you know, it's indoors and the, and the energy, um, you know, Dustin was a perfect storm. Darcis, I didn't see the match. Um, you know, against Roger, yeah, didn't didn't play his best tennis, didn't didn't play his best grass court tennis. So I, I would say he's, he's taken his foot off the pedal, and other guys have sensed that and and come at him harder. It would be interesting to see how successful Rafa would be on grass when it was played. You know, in the in the eighties and early nineties, before they before they really slowed it up. That would have had. I mean, Rafa would have had to make some obvious adjustments. Too. So um, 
it would be interesting how that would happen previous time. I know people want to listen um, and hear about your work with, with Novak. And I know Steve has some questions about that. Um, if you don't mind, just kind of talk about um, how you got involved, the, the work you did with Novak and the team and, and just overall thoughts on, on Novak. I mean, he's a very interesting individual. I was at a, uh, a meeting in Indian Wells in 2006 with PlaySight about integrating brain game and PlaySight and bringing, bringing those two together. And Gordon Euling was in the meeting. So Gordon and I hadn't officially met and I hadn't, it was the first time I met the PlaySight guys. And it was just about getting to know each other. So, you know, they were telling me about the technology and then I was telling them about the the analytics and, and the research that I do. And Gordon just said, you know, this is fascinating stuff. Have you ever talked to Novak about it? And I'm like, I've never talked to Novak, period. Um, he's like, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to introduce you guys. So he put me in touch with Murray and Vida. Um, after Indian Wells, I was in um, Monte Carlo, you know, a, a few weeks later. And Marion and I sat down and I just explained all the work that I do. And, and I, you know, I opened up my laptop and showed him the Dartfish tagging panel and, and showed him what the, the reports look like and the ability to analyze the video, the ability to analyze opponents. And, you know, Marion saw a lot of value in that. Um, nothing happened for a few months. You know, we, we stayed in touch, um, but, you know, it's difficult. It's difficult to kind of take that next step while the season's going. We, we met again at the US Open and then, I approached them again in December and said, you know, I'd like to do this with you guys next year. And they came back and said, well, let's do a trial for three months. And I'm like, <laughs> and you said, you said 2006, you initially. Yeah. So okay. th this, this, these were the discussions in 2006. So the first time I met Novak was Australian open 2007. And it was in the, in the player restaurant in the garden at, um, at the Australian open in Melbourne. And um, we sat down and, Kind of a little awkward for a couple of minutes you know how's the family nice to meet you what's going on and then i, I you know i kind of broke the ice i go novak you know i've, I've explained everything to marion i'm sure he's told you about it but my question to you to kind of kick this off is how can i best help you what do you want from me and he said three things he goes and, and you know the first speaks to novak's career the first thing he said is that he goes craig i'm sure i'm positive that there's things in my game that I'm doing right now that I really shouldn't be doing. There's things that um, I'm not optimizing, whatever it is, whether I'm hitting too many backhands, whether I'm not hitting enough run around points, whether I'm not going to the net enough. He's like, Craig, I want you to find out what that is. I want you to find out what, I, what I'm doing too much of that I shouldn't be and what I need to be doing more of. So study me, study me, make me better, make my patterns better. Make me win more, essentially. Um, secondly, it's like, uh, before I play every match, I don't want any surprises. I want a game plan. I want to know about the guy. You know, there's times where I've never played the guy. I don't know, I, you know, and I walk on the court and I know nothing about them. It's like, I want you to take that surprise factor away and, and give me a game plan and give me a, a preview of all the opponents. Um, video, so I, I did um, a combination of video and, and serve data um, where the player broke down from the back of the court, the ABCD areas there. Um, and lastly was, it's like, well, you know, there's a couple of other guys out there that um, get in my way a little bit that we need to 
pay more attention to. <laughs> so let's make sure that we really study those those two guys, and um, and we know them we know them better than we they know us, and um, and that was it. Those were the three areas, and 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 that's we start off in 2017. You know, we just lost to Andy in the finals of. Oh, I just, I guess, my question is: you start in 06, in 2006, no, and then you go wait, to 2000. No, sorry, David. It seems to me you're saying, Craig, you that uh, that sit down with Novak was at the 2017 Australian, right? Yeah, 2017. Okay, okay. that's right. Okay, Did I say 2006. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I get I get a little off. I'm a, I'm only off by a decade though. Yeah, so, so for context, it's 2016 that these exactly. conversations are. Okay, that's what I thought. I'm like, 2006, yeah. that's a long time ago. Right. Okay. Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead, David. Yeah, so that, that's what I wanted to, to, to get. Just the, the context of the time yeah. was 2016, 17, and you started with him yeah. through, through that. And it was a successful partnership, obviously. Well, you know, he, he dropped from number one to number two at the end of 2016, losing to Andy Murray in the final in London. Right. So, you know, 2017, he's at the start, he's doing okay. You know, not really, you know, his greatest year. It's not like a 2015 or a 2011, but it's not bad. But he gets to Wimbledon and then he pulls out with the elbow issue against Burdich and then doesn't play for the rest of the season. Right. And I go to Monte Carlo in December for a training camp because he's going to come back. And Agassi's there. It's Agassi's first day and, and, and Stepanik. So we're all there, you know, getting, you know, assessing Novak's level after six months off, off tennis. And, um, you know, that was, that was an extremely interesting week, um, you know, with, with everybody there. And then, you know, coming back at the end, um, c- coming back, I, I guess, at the start of 2018, you know, and, and the bad losses early on, you know, the loss um, at, at the Aussie Open. Um, I, f- I forget who that was there, but then oh, you've got... Chung. Chung. Yeah, then, then you've got, you know, the loss um, to Indian Daniel, Wells. I think, at Indian Wells in Miami. Indian Wells. Indian Wells. And, you know, nothing kind of, nothing, you know, and Novak had lost some weight. Novak was skinny. You know, he lost some muscle during that time away. And so, you know, he's finding his stamina, he's finding his body again. And it really wasn't until he got, he, he stood on the grass courts where, ah, I, I found my game again, you know, making the final of Queens, having a match point against Silich really set things up to, um, you know, for the run at Wimbledon and, and, and to win Wimbledon that year. So, you know, that's when everything came together. Yeah, and that was another day. I've got to tell you this, Steve. Um, Grant Canton was the assistant um, groundskeeper um, at, at the time. And, and I would meet, you know, with Grant and, and um, you know, a bunch of the other guys there as well, on, you know, nine o'clock out on center court um, and, and with Neil as well, the head groundsman. And, um, you know, we'd have coffee at nine o'clock every morning during the championships out on center court. And I, I you know, th- then, uh, you know, I would drop by and I'd see them put the net up around 11. I'm like, Man, that must be something to carry that net out there. And Grant goes, "Yeah, no one's ever done it except a groundsman. But do you want to do it?" I'm like, "Mate, that would be a life goal to do that." So I kept I kept popping back around eleven each day or twelve, and it, it never kind of worked out. You know, my timing was off or whatever. And then and then for the final, I go out there. I think at around twelve, and and the guy's coming. He's got you know, it's fifty pounds. The net post is fifty pounds. Um. And, and he's about ready to walk on. And Grant goes, hang on, give that to Craig. And I'm like, mate, are you serious? 
<laughs> so I get it. I, I'm, I, I, I carried the far net post the, the, on the other side of uh, where the umpire is. I, I, I carry it out on a center court. I, I clip it in. I wind it up for the men's final. I do the game plan in 2018. I do the game plan against Anderson. I, I, I coach the guy. I put the net up and I commentate for the Wimbledon channel um, on center court for the final. I mean, there's a few days that stand out in your life that are pretty good in, in you know, your vocation. And, and the Dustin Brown one, even though I won four slams, or, or I didn't win four slams, let me take that back. Even though I assisted Novak to win four slams, um, the most fun I ever had was Dustin Brown beating, beating the other. That was the most fun. That was the most fun day in tennis I've ever had. And then putting the net up on center court was another big one. Um, and then, then obviously, you know, Novak being a part of, you know, with Murray and Vida on that coaching team for Novak to win four slams. Those, those were good days. That's so great. talk about a little bit, uh, Craig, about, I mean, it, it's been well publicized, I suppose. I mean, you mentioned Murray and Vida and he was obviously receptive to your work and was great. And, and you had Goran come along and Goran, it wasn't, I'm sure it was nothing personal, but he was not big on the stats. So how did that play out? In, in Novak's mind, and how did you convince? How were you able to convince Novak that of the the the, in, the continuing value of of your work? Well, when you um, had, had maybe Goran two came on, I, I believe the first tournament I saw him at was Wimbledon in 2019. Right. And, okay. Yeah. And um, you know that was his first deal. So he, you know, Marion and I had a great program going. You know, essentially. Um, you know, when we did the game plans with Novak um, and, and Marion orchestrated this, Marion did a great job putting this together. He, you know, he said to you, he said to me, he's like, Craig, when we sit down with Novak, present a piece of information, your first piece of information about the opponent um, and, and about the matchup and, and, and not too much, but, you know, the, the, you know the, the first chapter, present the first chapter to Novak. And then give him a little bit of time. Give him a little bit of time to digest it. Give him a little time to kick it around in his brain. And then let's see if he says anything about it. Anything about it, he's going to be Murray's at the end and Murray's just going to accent for the match. And Murray's going to accent for no bit. If I have anything to add it, and that's it. So, you know, I present, Novak absorbs, Marion adds in, and we just kept doing that for, you know, five or six times until we covered the entire game plan. And Marion was a master at, at, at putting that together so that Novak you know, wasn't getting overwhelmed with me putting everything out there at the start. Um, and, and, you know, it was a real team effort. So, you know, it takes a special coach to do that because, you know, Marion's giving up a little bit of, um, you know, the coaching side, you know, it's like, Craig, you're the strategy guy. You're the guy that studies the opponents. You're the guy that's going to give the game plan. And, you know, at that level, when Marion's been with Novak for a number of years, you know, you got to take your hat off to Marion Vider and, and say, you know, you know, the, the humility to be able to step back and say, um, Craig's Craig's taking over this area. That's his role. That's his specialty. And you know, there's it doesn't always happen that way. So I've got massive respect um, for Marion Vider for allowing me to come onto the team and join him, and 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 being able to do my work. You know, a lot of times it doesn't always work that way. You know, the, a head coach will can sometimes be tough to work with. But when Gorn came aboard, you said Wimbledon 19. So did you have discussions with Gorn and how honest where you sort of aired your differences about the importance of this or was Gorn, did, did Gorn not tell you how he felt? How, yeah, how did the, that... at the start, 
at the start Goran correctly, you know, kind of observed the discussion with Marina and I, and we always included Goran and what do you think? And, and everything was fine. We got to the US Open and we were doing the same thing. And I turned around, I, I, we're doing a game plan. And I turned around to, to Goran and I said to him, Goran, is there any, anything else you want me to pull up or you know, any questions you have? And he said to me, and I, you know, I remember it like this morning, he goes, Craig, just show me three points, any three points. Show me three points and I'll tell you how to beat the guy. And as soon as he said that, I'm like, we've got problems. We've got problems. Because, in, you know, in, in one element, I like the simplicity. And in one element, there, there's truth to that. You know, it's like, show me just a handful of points and, and that pattern will repeat itself. So, but, you know, it's like, you know, we're covering serve data, we're covering ret return data, we're covering all our bases. You know, we don't want to surprise. We want to make sure, even though we may not give all that information to Novak, we want to make sure that we as a coaching team know everything. You know, we're not, we're not going to leave any stone unturned. So that's when I first got the feeling that Gorham was not into the data. He was not into, to, into studying opponents. And, and by the end, at the end of the season, you know, I got the email, I was like, we're moving in a new direction. And you know what? I, I respect that because... If Goran's taking over as the lead role, it's it's his ship. And he gets to decide how that goes. And as much as I admire Marion and, and what he did, I also admire Goran saying, I, I'm going in a different direction and that's totally fine. And to Goran's credit, he's had a lot of success. So Marion and I working together, we had a lot of success. And Boris Becker had a lot of success with Novak as well. And now Goran's had a lot of success. So, you know, it, it's, it's not to say that analytics work or don't work. Um, of course they work. You know, it's, of course it's good to understand your opponents. Of course it's good to know, you know, what you're doing. But there's seasons. And, you know, we're going through a season right now where, where Goran's had a lot of success. Whether that continues with Novak now struggling because he's not getting the matches, you know, that's, that, that's a big deal now. You know, he, you know, going into a match and not really knowing the opponent, um, you know, that, that, that's when you need it. You need, you need analytics, especially when, when to know what they're going to do and, and especially when you may be struggling and, and, and um, you know, you want to know what, what's going on in my game and, you know, you've got to study, you've got to, you know, you've got to go to work to, to figure that out. Greg, just quickly go back one time, if you would, to, again, to Wimbledon 19, because I think the listeners would be really fascinated to hear what your how you helped Novak prepare for that one, the analytics for the Federer final, which turned into an epic. And going in, obviously, Novak was the clear favorite, and he'd beaten Roger already in two Wimbledon finals. And, and, and yet, you know, we get that, we get 13-12 in the fifth, and, and Novak, uh, you know, he could have lost any of the sets that he won. He's down 5-3 in the first set tiebreak. He wins that set. He loses the second badly. He squeaks out the third after being down a set point on his serve late in the set. He loses the fourth fairly decisively. And then, of course, the, the incredible fifth when Roger had double match point. Talk about your recollections of the match, but more so your interactions with Novak leading into it, because it's obviously one of the, one of, one of the pivotal matches of his career. Yeah, yeah. Of our, you know, of the last few decades, for sure. Um, you open tennis. Um, I did commentate that final. Uh, so I was up in the commentary booth talking about it and, 
and giving all, you know, the, the, listen. the good thing in the commentary booth, you know, you give the game plan, but then once they walk out there on the court, you know, I can, I can start talking a little bit more freely about what I'm seeing and what's going on, because it's not like they're going to come up and go, well, Craig said this on the commentary, you know, it's like the, the guys are on, I, I kind of have any more effect on this. Um, you know, the, the patterns against Roger, you know, it, it's Roger, the, the, when we go back to when Roger won the Australian Open in, for, the, for the first time in a while, in 2017, I believe it was. Yeah. Um, yes, right. right. Yeah. The, the key to Roger's game is the backhand return. That's the key, especially against Rafa. So what Roger can typically do against a lot of players is chip the backhand return, neutralize the point, within two or three shots, find a run around forehand, and then and then start winning the the, the wrestle match. You know that that you know four or five shots later the opponent's done. Um, when when Roger chips the return against against Rafa, it, it doesn't hurt him. It gives him time. The ball's low, but Rafa can whip it. He's going to find Roger's backhand immediately. Um, Roger can't find neutral quick enough. So what Roger needed to do was to to come over it. And, and to block it and to get it back on Rafa because you've got this immediate time that you can rush Rafa right after the serve. That's, that, that's, a, that's a pocket of, of potential weakness for Rafa. And it's going to go always to Roger's backhand return and Roger's got to pop it. So that was one thing we were looking for. Is Roger going to chip or is Roger going to block? Um, and the other thing is that Roger, in the back of the court, the ABCD areas, um, we're, we're really pivotal, pivotal, you know, I can, you know, if, if this is a court, actually, I'll just draw it right here on this envelope. So we've got a, we'll, we'll get this up on YouTube. So hopefully people will be able yeah. to see what Craig's doing right yeah. now too. So we see here, A is out wide in the juice court and A is out wide in the juice court. So what we want here is Roger, to, we don't want to, we don't want him in C hitting run around forehands. That's what we don't want. So everything about once the points got into baseline patterns was to not give Roger runaround forehands in C. That's when he's he's at his best. And if you look at the three tiebreakers that that um, that Novak won, Roger Roger was bossing, and it was it was an amazing match because you would expect, and I expected Roger uh, for Novak to be bossing Roger around from the baseline in those points, but it really wasn't that way. Roger was really good from the baseline, and Novak spent a lot of that match on defense. Um, but in the three tiebreakers, Roger, you know, Novak came to the net more in those three tiebreakers than Roger did. So what happened is Roger played really well to the tiebreakers and then he went away. He stopped committing to coming forward. He stopped approaching. He stopped serving and bowling. And what he needed to do, what he needed to do was he needed to hit the ball to position B and C down the middle of the court in order to get a middle forehand. So what Roger was doing wrong is that Roger was starting the point by going to D, which is Novak's backhand. First of all, Novak's not going to miss that. In a pressure situation in the Wimbledon final, there is no way in the world Novak's missing a backhand in D. And he's going to hit a cross court to D, which is exactly where Roger does not want to be. So part of the game plan is put Roger in the backhand cage, stick him in position D all day long and get into this cross-court backhand to backhand rally. And then you can exploit Roger with a backhand down the line and get, you know, Roger can spray forehands with a running forehand in A a lot. Um, but when you look at it in those tiebreakers, 
Roger needed to hit the ball down the middle to C because it's going to come back to C and then he's got to run around forehand. But he didn't. He hit way too many balls to D. He hit too many balls to B and he hit way too many balls to A. Right. When he goes to C, you're saying you get rid of the angle, right? You're getting rid of the angle. Yeah. Go ahead, Steve. Yeah, sorry, Dave. No, but hold on a second, David. What I'm struck by is that Craig's analysis there was so largely from where Roger, where he thought Roger went wrong. But I want to know more, and I'm fascinated by that, but I want to know more where you think, what surprised you from Novak's end that match, because you were working with Novak. And so I'm, I'm more, I'm intrigued to know what, what you were expecting going in and did you think that where was Novak unable to assert himself yeah. aside from the tie breaks what what were the see, from my standpoint it didn't seem like he had a great day on the return and he then also criticized himself that night later on he said he didn't think he served well so yeah. what did you think of his performance overall aside from the tie breaks because it was a great mental triumph to be sure but it didn't seem it to me that Novak was at his best Analyze it from, from his end. Yeah. Well, th- the first thing, Steve, that's interesting is that you asked the question, a, a great question about, about Novak in that final. But my natural reaction is to talk about Roger because when I do the game plan, it's all about Roger. It's all about the opponent. It's all about the matchup. Mm. You know, I have a saying is that you are the second most important person on a tennis court. And so, so I'm going to answer your question, but it, it also gives you a little insight is that, you know, when, when Novak and I would sit down and, and dissect the match, post-match analysis, we're going to be talking about Roger the whole time. You and I wanted to talk, we're going to be talking about Roger. Um, Agassi was the same. You know, when Agassi won the um, 2000 Australian Open against Kofelnikov, he sat down, you know, for the post-match interview and and, um, you know, the questions were all about Agassi. But Agassi could not stop talking about Kofelnikov because everything that he did was about him. So let's, let's, get, back to, um, let's get back to Novak here. Novak didn't, wasn't great from the back of the court. Novak was defending a lot. I expected Novak to hit the ball through the court and push Roger back and get Roger on the back foot. And it didn't happen enough. He didn't, you're right, he didn't serve that well. He didn't return that well. Roger was better in those areas. But, you know, the, the match really came down to those three tiebreakers. And, and in each of them, Roger didn't commit to the patterns that got him to the tiebreaker. Roger should have won that match, not only for the fact that he got one point away. Um, and especially, you know, in order, when he went up 40-15, he went T at 15 all. And he went T at 30-15. And then he goes wide at 40-15. That was ridiculous. Ridiculous. Well, that was he after. Gone that, again. Craig, you're right. But that was after he tried to ace him down the T on the first serve. And just missed it. That tape, uh, Roger, yeah. when the first match point. Then he went wide with the second serve and, uh, to Novak. But he did go T on the first and he just, did. He hit the net. He yeah. missed it. Yeah, he clipped the yeah. net. Yeah. By a in, that, in that situation, you keep it, it's. It, listen, so, you, so you, Craig, you sorry, Craig, Craig, quit. Sorry. So my question, I guess, you're saying he should have gone hit the second serve to uh, that. Roger should have gone down the T on the second serve as well. Roger should have gone T the whole time because he's he's not yeah. he's not giving angle. 
Right. He's not right. giving angle. Right. Yeah. right. Okay. It's, okay. See, again, it's, it's not about Roger's serve. It's about it's about Novak's return. Yeah. And and it's about the serve plus one a, against Novak. You've it's you've just got to say it's a given. This thing's coming back. But where do I want to be standing? And if Novak serves, if, if Roger serves down the middle, he's going to be standing in the middle of the court with a forehand, probably. Yeah. If he serves wide, he's going to be stretched hitting a forehand. Fascinating. Fascinating stuff, Craig. No, it's, it's great. I know we've been going for a while. I appreciate your time. I, I do want to say, and I've heard you speak USPTA conferences and, and numerous places. Um, I've heard you talk about my favorite stat. Um, and I think it's super important for juniors to, to when they listen to this, you know, everyone talks about tennis and they got to play so well and be perfect. And they're all seeking perfection. And the stat that I love, it's unbelievable. And you look at the big three, they do not win more than 55% of their points over the course of years. So when you say, Craig, you and I play, you beat me six, two, six, three, pretty routine. You're not winning. And what would think maybe you'd win 65% or 70% of the points. I only win 35 or 30% of the points. It's not like that. And the margins are so thin. And again, it, you, when you really think about it, you can see it. Because if I'm getting broken and we're talking world-class players, right? Roger versus Novak or what are two pros playing? You're not breaking a lot at love. You're breaking at 30, 40, or you're breaking at a deuce ad game quite a bit. So um the 55% threshold, I mean, when, when people first hear that stat, they're like, no, you're lying. But when you think about it and the, the stats prove it out, mm-hmm. there's no such thing as perfect. You just got to be, and Andre said this a lot once Brad Gilbert started getting in, the, in his head, you just got to be a little bit better mm-hmm. than the guy on the other side of the court. And your stat proves that out so much. Yeah, there's, there's a few that I start with. Like tennis is essentially 70% errors. Um, you're... you're uh, I, I, I tweeted this, I think, yesterday or the day before. You know, Raf has now been 17 years in the top 10. Um, points one, he's at, for his career, is 54.54%. The only players above 54 are Federer and Nadal and Djokovic. They're the only ones. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Raf number one in points one. And, and yes, point, points one is, is a double-edged sword as a stat, is that you don't, you know, there's some points... It doesn't really matter. You know, you're going to lose some points and they, they kind of throw it. But it's a really important stat. It, you know, the more I see it, you know, to, to be, to elevate, you know, a 6-3-6-3 match is 55%. You know, the best players in the world, you can round them up to 55%. So essentially, think of it like this, David. You're going out to play a match. You get two players walking out to the court. You could essentially say they're both going to win 45%. So we're at 90 they're really, yep. they're really walking on the court battling over 10%. That's it. 10 points out of 100. That's what's going to separate um, those two players. And it's incredible. You know, and then you say, who, the player that is more mentally you know, strong, the player that doesn't defeat themselves, the player that doesn't get mad and angry, the player, you know, and a lot of those points, this is what's really interesting. You say, okay, how, what's going to be a common denominator with, with those points is that you need to go and grab the point from the opponent's serve and the opponent's serve is probably coming to your backhand return. So the backhand return is the canary in the coal mine for those 10 points. If you've got a great backhand return, you're going places in this sport. If you don't, you're going to struggle your entire career. 
Amazing. I love that stat. I love hearing you talk about it. And it's just, again, you, you never would think that the margins are that small. And we're talking about the big three, the very best, you know, arguably ever, right? Um, this was awesome. Steve, before we, before we let Craig go, and again, we appreciate so much of your time. Anything else we want to end with before we let him go? Hey, you don't mind. Just a quick uh, a, a comment on how your system, how, how you've made it efficient from your, for your purposes. As an example, when you're working with a Berrettini or a Djokovic or who are your, your many players, you want to get them the information quickly. So over the years, has your, how have you devised your system so that you can get to those numbers quickly after a match or to write your piece for ATP as well? So that yeah. all the information is there at your fingertips and can quickly be accessed. Great, great question. Dartfish match tagging is how I do it. And I used to actually do the tagging myself. Um, I have a very good friend, Warren Pretorius, who is a coach and, and now has created a business called Tennis Analytics. He has around 50 US colleges sending him matches. He has a, he has a, a team of taggers in the States and in South Africa that tag matches. So essentially on a computer, you've got the match on half the screen and you've got a series of buttons that you click. You watch it first serve, uh, forehand return, serve plus one backhand. So you just, as the point goes, you click the buttons, next point. So you speed up to the next point. Then that, um, that, that tagging panel is then going to populate what I call as a match intelligence report. And it's a 10 page report of things that I think that are the most important to winning. So for instance, at the top left, you've got rally length. What is the rally length of this match? Then you've got who won zero through four, five through eight and nine plus. <clears throat> One of the things, um, Steve, is that, okay, when you look at different stats, you know, Hawkeye is doing some stats and IBM is doing stats and um, SAP and Infosys are doing stats and USTA is doing stats. Everyone's, you know, creating their own stuff. When you look at a, when you look at a, a series of stats, Unless you can find forehand winners and forehand errors, unless you can go, oh, there's the forehand winners and there's the forehand errors from the match. Unless you can see that, essentially you've got nothing. You've got nothing. Because you're not, you, you've, got, you've got a bunch of things that you're reporting. Like at the moment on Tennis TV, we, we're getting, what was the spin rate on, on the returns? 97%. I don't care about that. Tell me, you know, there are so many forehands hit in a match. There's hundreds of forehands. Tell me how many winners and tell me how many errors. And if, and if you look at a stat sheet and you can't find that, then it's a bunch of baloney. <laughs> that you've got a bunch of stats that mean nothing, but from their metrics, they're able to record it. And, and, and it really holds our sport back. Get rid of the unforced error, have winners and errors. Tell me how many forehand winners the guy hit. Tell me any, how many forehand errors he hit. And from there, let's extrapolate out other key elements. So that's how I do it. When a match, when a match finishes, Warren's team tags it. I, I, I don't tag anymore. And I go, the first thing I do is I go to the match intelligence report and I go through to see what kind of match it was. And I've got to the point now where those numbers are a language. Like I, I don't, I look at Japanese. I don't understand Japanese. But, you know, a Japanese person could look at tennis statistics and they don't understand what these numbers mean either. Whereas it's a language now for me. I can tell you how the player was feeling. I can tell you whether they were nervous by 
those analytics. I know the benchmarks that Berrettini needs to hit in a match. I know how many times he should be at the net. I know what his first serve percentage is. I know how many run around forehands he should be hitting. So those numbers not only tell me, was he playing well? It, it also tells me, was he confident? Was he nervous? Um, so I've got to the point from doing it for so many years that that's, you know, the, the numbers come first. And then you go to the video. A lot of times, Steve, you look at it and it's like, well, that's a weird number. Go to the video. The video is going to tell you everything. You know, the video is really the bottom line. The stats are not the bottom line. The stats simply lead you to the video. And, the, and then I make, I make um, highlight videos. You know, I, I just finished doing a bunch for Berrettini. Um, Vincenzo Santa Padre wanted some, you know, when, when Mateo's returning, when it's a two-shot rally, you know, he's in the juice court returning a first serve and it's a two-shot rally. Craig, make a video. I just did. Four, four minutes. Four minutes of only that again and again and again. And you see patterns. So numbers are good. Video is the best. Fascinating. Fascinating. I don't know about you, David. I think I've learned a lot in the last 42 uh, minutes. And it's just amazing to me that, you know, video, uh, all sport, all the sports uh, have used video for so much longer than what tennis has. We've been so late to the game. And it's obviously to, to Craig's benefit that it's been late to the game because Craig's been able to create a whole business out of doing this. Um, it's amazing to me that tennis is so late to the game, but Craig, this was uh this was a fascinating conversation. We both Steve and I really appreciate uh, you giving us the time. And I know the listeners are going to have fun listening to this. Well, you guys are absolutely awesome. And um, you know, Steve, especially I, was, I see you at a lot of the events and yeah, you know, right. your wealth of information, you know, you you've seen our sport evolve and you've, you know, you've got your finger on the pulse for, for decades in a row. So it's, <clears throat> it's an absolute pleasure to talk to you guys. And, and, and I, I appreciate being on the podcast. And believe me, it's a privilege for me to ride Steve's coattail. Steve is the best. So it's great to be part of it. Well, he's a Hall of Famer for a reason. Hall of Famer for a reason, no doubt. Thanks. Thanks, guys. Great. Very David, much. David, thank you. Steve, thank you. It was an absolute pleasure. Cheers, guys. Yeah, here.